Welcome to the Expansive CEO Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman, founder of Expansive CEO and X Squared Wealth Planning. Buckle in as we explore how to create true prosperity and build a business and a life that expands beyond yourself and makes a dent in the universe. All right. Welcome to this episode of the Expansive CEO Podcast, where we have got the September 8th edition of the Investment Friday series with Brad Haynes, the Chief Investment Officer of Juncture Wealth Strategies. Brad, what's up? Not much. What's up with you? Just uh, living the dream out here, coming into the season of spend. So Mm -hmm. that's exciting. Right. Yes. We've got that coming up here with September, officially beginning of September, right? Moving into that season. What is happening or has anything been happening really um, in the economy to talk about in this last week? Uh, the last week has been pretty pretty low key. Um, we, I think, we spoke last week a little bit about you know some of the indicators that have started to give investors a little pause about the uncertainty. Like, is inflation under control? Is it not under control? Should I sell my stocks? Should I buy some more stocks? Uh, a lot of a lot of just a lot of uncertainty. Uh, September historically is the worst month of the year just from a volatility standpoint. So Mm -hmm. there's lots of trading reasons around that with institutional investors, but it's generally the time where people start focusing on other things like, like yourself and myself, we had kids go back to school. So that becomes a big highlight of, you know, late August, early September of, well, we got to get them prepared for school. They've got to get, you know, get them to their back to school nights meet the teachers, their friends, and uh, and start school. And uh, thank heavens that we got through that period. Right. Yes. My children are all in school. Um, all of that, yep, feels getting back into routine a little bit more. We've been back for a couple of weeks now. I know some, um, some schools on the East Coast just barely went back this week, um, beginning of September. Some even wait till after Labor Day. So... Yeah, beautiful. And one of the things that you mentioned um, actually goes perfectly into one of the questions we had for this week. So Bob from Huntsville, thank you for always sending in such good questions. Um, yes, first of all, right? He was asking about the VIX. It's V-I-X. And what that is, it's a measure of volatility in the stock markets, right? And so my question or um, the fleshing out of that question for me was, what has the VIX been doing? What does it mean, first of all? So we'll go through that. Um, And how has it changed as a measure of volatility over the last, you know, several years as we've been through some really interesting periods, probably even since 2018, I would say. Um, So. Yeah. So what's, tell us, what is the VIX, Brad, and what does it mean? Yes. So the VIX is, uh, what it is, it's an index created by the CBOE, which used to be known as the Chicago Board Options Exchange, but now it, it goes by the CBOE. Um, they created an index to give uh, investors, particularly equity investors, a measure of what people are what investors are expecting the volatility to be in the S&P 500 over the next short term okay 
30 days, 60 days, you know, what, what are we forecasting? Um, and so that is essentially what it is. It's a measure of what the short-term expectations for volatility in the S&P 500 is going to be. Now, what is that useful for? Okay. Well, historically, it's been known as a fear index, meaning as, as investors were very, very fearful, the, these, the VIX index would go up a lot. You so know, it, high, high readings on the VIX means high fear. High yeah. fear, high uncertainty, high nervousness, high distress in the equity markets. Um, so those would be very, very high levels. Um, whereas kind of business as normal would be, you know, in the much, much lower level. Uh, so to give you an idea, the average volatility in the S&P 500 is around 18 to 20% per year. So a VIX less than that is below average. A VIX more than that is higher than average. Okay. So uh, generally during crisis situations, we've seen VIX, the VIX trade above 30, 35, 40, 80. Those are some extreme levels indicating that, that everybody is very, very fearful. They're expecting over the near term, very high volatility in the S&P 500. A VIX of 10 to 15 is kind of like, yeah, things chugging along. Things are going okay. It's a normal market environment. So oftentimes people view the VIX as, um, you know, what what what's fear doing within the equity markets? Are people fearful? It, are they nonplussed? So that that's kind of an interesting uh it's an interesting index well and what i'm pulling out of this description um is that it's a it's a measure of expectation not a measure of actuality is that Correct. true that is massively true and very important because uh what what they're doing is they're taking the implied volatility from the options, the short-term options on the S&P 500 and extracting that implied volatility number, that is generally what the VIX is, okay? Implied volatility is generally higher than realized volatility, okay? Over a market cycle, not all the time in one spot, but in, like in any one time, um, it's, it can be either way, but generally over a long period of time, you have implied volatility exceeding uh, realized volatility or actual volatility. So, and so let's back up just a little bit because you just, um, you just kind of like pulled the curtain back a little bit, which is important um, to say that they're not like going out and surveying people to see how scared they are, right? They're, they're measuring options. And so what exactly are they measuring with the options? They are measuring uh, the price. Hold on just a sec. Uh, I think my video just went out. So forgive me. It I did. It. No, that's okay. We will. Audio only is totally fine. Okay. <laughs> so essentially what it's doing is it's extracting 
from the price of options that implied volatility. Okay. So as, as investors look out over the, the landscape over the next little while, they're saying, hey, how volatile do I think it is? Investors tend to have what we call a recency bias, which means whatever's happened in the volatility of the S&P 500 over the past couple of weeks, they forecast that's going to be what it's going to be over the next short period of time. So that recency bias informs a lot about that implied volatility. Mm-hmm. And so that's where they're pulling the, the VIX index is a kind of a weighted average of those implied volatilities over the next 52 weeks, 30, 30, 30 months, depend, or 30 days, depending on which index you're looking at. Okay. So when we're looking at, you know, when people buy options, that you buy an option because you think a stock is going to shift, right? So either you think it's going to go up or you think it's going to go down. So you're going to buy either a put option or a call option, right? And so because you think something is going to shift. Um, So we don't have to go super deep into that. That's just kind of like super high level basic there. I would love to do that if you'd like. We let's let's save that for another time. Um, that's put a pin in. <laughs> we'll put a pin in the options. And yeah, if you're listening and you want to know more about that, send us a note so we know that that's something you want to hear about. Because um, yeah, it's fascinating for sure. But this is literally the VIX is just like measuring the activity in the options market and then forecasting that out as an index. Correct. Yeah. Okay. That's essentially what it's doing. So with that. How has this measure changed over time? Because it doesn't mean, like we said, uh, it's it's measuring an expectation. It's not necessarily measuring the reality of what's happening in the stock market. So from your lens of like this, you know, taking a broader view of time and the VIX index, what has changed and is it a reliable measure to utilize and how do you how do you if you do utilize it at juncture um so it's changed a lot and the reason why is because it's based fundamentally on the trading in the options on the S&P 500 okay so that's really critical so as as um as trading changes in those marketplaces for those options it, it it will reflect differently in the index. So one of the one of the popular things of the past couple of years is buying uh, zero day options, meaning you're going to trade it on Friday, the Friday before it, ex- it it expires. So it's a zero day option, and you're trading a lot of those. You can get a tremendous amount of leverage. They they generally are very very inexpensive, meaning. You know they're one to ten cents a share or a, a, a per option, so it's really a very cheap way of kind of speculating that what you think is going to happen over the next twenty four hours. Okay. Um, that has changed the 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 way that the the VIX has come in a little bit. Um, so it's not necessarily a super uh, reliable index of very very short term uh, data. But I think it still is a very reasonable estimation of what 
the underlying volatility will be or what is expected to be over the next 30 days. Okay. So it may not forecast the next 24 hours very well, but I think it is a very good reflection of what's happening over the next 30 days. Now, one of the other developments that's really changed over the past really five to 10 years is the development of exchange traded products where a retail investor, an institutional investor can use an exchange traded product, whether it's an exchange traded fund or an exchange traded note to express in a view on volatility. Mm. So meaning if you think the market's going to kind of fall apart, um, you can go in and buy an exchange traded fund that owns a proxy of the VIX. Okay. Yeah. So they gain access to, to that volatility index. And if you're right and the volatility goes up, then that, that ETF's price will go up uh, significantly. Um, one of the ways we've used the VIX in at Juncture Wealth Strategies over the years is we have traded the VIX exchange traded fund as part of a hedge, as part of a way to hey, things are going really, really well right now. The VIX is at a very, very, very low level. In fact, it's almost record low levels. Why don't we take a, why don't we buy a little bit of insurance on the side here with a couple percentage points of our portfolio? And then as tends to happen, volatility returns to the markets. And when those go up, they generally have an amplified effect. Um, the, the ETF we were using has a four to five times impact. So for every percent we put into it, when it went up a lot, it was a five times effect. So okay. if the market was down 10%, it was up 50%. Okay. So you didn't need a lot. It's like spice. It's like pepper. You know, you put a little bit of pepper, it makes the, 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 the whole meal better. You use too much and it's going to ruin it. So it's something that we 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 just have a every periodically we have a little bit of insurance in there uh, by using the VIX. Interesting. That's super interesting. Um, so when we look at because this is fascinating and kind of going into the next topic, I think that um, I wanted to talk about today. We talk about implied volatility, actual volatility, utilizing, you know, different kinds of instruments in the portfolios. There have been a lot of what I want to say, um, like social media and media in general, influencers um, coming more into the public eye recently who have been really beating the drum of like, you should just be in an S&P 500 index. And that's it. And that's all you need. And if you're, you know, doing anything different, then you're being somehow scammed or paying too much money for investment management or any anything like that. And I want to say um, unequivocally, like there are the right portfolios for every person. Like if that's the right thing for you, or if you're just getting started, right? Like there, there can be so many different reasons and so many different ways that you can invest that are right for you and for your situation. But 
what happens when, you know, people get a platform where they can talk to billions of people at a time and then start, you know, giving out literal financial advice to people that they don't know at all and have no idea what their financial situation is. Then we start to see that on the other side of people questioning and wondering, you know, like what's going on? Why, you know, why do you charge asset management fees or what's different or, you know, what's happening there? And my take on that was that, especially with some of these, you know, influencers who are like, just, it's just this easy. You just do, you know, S&P 500 this or, you know, large cap this and do and leave it alone, set it and forget it. Is that over the last, you know, 10 to 15 years? Yeah, that's been true. So these these people who are fairly young, right? Like my I'm almost 40. A lot of them are either my age or younger even. Yeah, maybe they did kill it for the last 10 years doing that. Absolutely. That might be true because the S&P 500, like we've talked about even on this podcast, has really um, been the leading market over the last you know 15-ish years. So when it starts to be the thing where it's like, it's so easy, just put all your money there and you can do what I did 15 years too late, that's where the problems start to set in. So I wanted to um, open that conversation and have you, you know, respond to that a little bit as well, because we've been talking about um, reversion to the mean and reversion to, you know, a more balanced economy. And that does look like small caps and mid caps coming back up to meet their historic, again, means. So tell me, what are you seeing and hearing and what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's the same thing. I mean, it's interesting because um, financial market influencers or financial planning influencers who don't do it for a living, but only advertise their services via social media, but don't really do it for a living, don't really have any training, aren't licensed, don't have any, they're not a, a certified financial planner, they're not a, a chartered financial analyst, they're not, they, they don't have any of those designations. Um, really, they're they're playing a little bit with fire when people listen to them. Um, it, it's almost like going to a doctor and um, saying, I don't want to go to a doctor because I read online that if I eat enough curry, I can be, I can live forever, you know, because you have a health and nutrition influencer who doesn't really know the science behind it. Um, they're just mimicking someone else. Okay. And that's, that gets to be dangerous when people use it for their medical or financial futures. Um, you know, one of the things we talked about last week or the week before was the entry point and how the valuation of the S&P 500 right now compared to history. And right now with a 23, 24 PE or 22 to 23 right now, price to earnings ratio, that is typically indicative of a, a mid to a little bit higher single digit return for the next 15 years. So I want to re I, I want to talk a little bit about that. That is not a small period of time. 
For many people, that is going to be at least a quarter, if not more, of their investing lifetime. So when you so the 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 data, the history shows when people put money to work in the S&P 500 at 22 to 23 PEs, the next 15 years, you're going to average six to six percent return for the next 15 years. Also, what it what it says, and this is where small cap comes in, is in lower, smaller, more more cheaply valued companies, which right now the Russell 2000 happens to be one of the cheapest areas in the domestic market for stocks right now. Those PEs that are very, very, that are much, much less than the S&P 500 typically come in with 12 to 13 to 14% average returns for the next 15 years. Mm. So that reversion to the mean, which you were talking a little bit about, is small cap has not done well for a long time. It hasn't. The S&P 500 has killed it. It's been a great time. It's been a great ride. But do not forget that there are other types of companies that can do very, very well. The S&P 500 right now is dominated by the top 10 stocks, only because they weight the index by the capitalization. What that means is if you take the market value of a company and if it's $1 trillion, okay, it is going to be, its its impact on the index is 10 times a hundred a company worth $100 billion, okay? Well, if you start adding it up, it means it's a very, very top-heavy, un, very unrepresentative of what's actually going on in the in the economy um, and what's actually going on in business. And so it's become so top-heavy in 2023 that not only is it a, a not a great place to invest, but I think it's actually a, a poor investment um, at this current valuation. Mm. A poor investment for people looking to get in, right? Or is that even like in general, like diversifying away? Yeah. I, I mean, if you've had a lot of large cap the past 15 years, and I hope you have, who's ever listening to this, we own a lot of large cap, but we have we have taken some off the board and we placed it in the smaller and mid cap area, which has not performed as well as the large cap over the past number of years. So it's, it's you know, if you look out three years, in any one year, anything can happen. But I'm looking out three years from now and I'm saying, what do I think is going to perform better? Hmm. Small cap stocks that are trading at a very low PE relative to the large cap stocks or the S&P 500, which is fairly richly valued right now and has come back almost to its all-time high even though there are some some major negatives coming down the pike, i.e. much higher interest rates. We have a regional bank crisis with with commercial real estate that still has not been solved. Um, All of those things are going to really hit a lot of the large cap market. They're going to hit small caps too. It's just small caps are inexpensive already. Okay. Mm -hmm. And if you're if you're trading inexpensively or cheaply, you're gonna you're gonna react 
far less negatively than large cap that has traded very, very richly and is, is, you know, the price will come, come down much quicker. So. Yeah. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. Is that uh Yeah. A, a little bit. Fair? I mean, you know, it's not like I don't like those companies. I do like those companies. I think they're wonderful, but you can trade too high relative to your future growth. And so that's all this is, is, you know, take a little bit off the board in your large cap, buy some small cap, buy some mid cap, you know, for the next three to five years, I think you'll be in the uh, the winner's seat again. Yeah. So overall, this this trend towards uh here's the other piece that i that i want to bring in and um yeah and we can kind of wrap it up there is this the sense of ultra simplicity that you know it's just this easy you know can't you know just do this this or one thing or these couple of things and that's all you need you don't need anything else again that might be true for some people. So I'm not saying that that's never true, but for anyone with a more complex financial situation in general, things are very rarely just do this one or two things and you're fine. There's so much more that goes into the process, whether it's investment planning or, you know, overall comprehensive financial planning, there, there is a reason why you know all of the designations exist that do and and why they're so difficult to get um you know the cfa is not an easy designation to get cfp is not an easy designation to get um and there's a reason for that so it's it's important i think to to be realistic about your your needs and your situation and if if there is like a lot of complexity. If you need help with your taxes every year, you know, that kind of thing, then listening to an influencer on very simplistic terms is, is going to come back to bite you. I think. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think, um, I think it's interesting because I think people need, I, I mean, if, if, if someone could invest in the S and P 500, and leave it alone and never look at it. And I do mean, even into retirement, you're not looking at it or living on it. You're fine. Okay. Probability is no one ever does that. I've never met anyone in my entire 30 year career that actually has the emotional fortitude, not even fortitude. They don't, they, they, their life changes, their goals change. Everything changes, you know, um, you know, even if you were a young person, you were an aggressive, all of a sudden you get married, have a kid that changes things and that changes the way you invest. Um, and so you update it. So one, I think it's important for, for clients to use uh, certified financial planners to do the financial planning work before they invest. Mm -hmm. Getting that financial plan in place, knowing what your goal is, articulating that goal and articulating how much risk you're willing to take on and then reviewing that on a yearly or, or bi-yearly basis is incredibly important because unless you can do that, what happens is you're going to be out the first rough patch you go through. 
And that is typically what I've seen over, over my career is people who don't have their goal in mind, don't know what they're investing for, get very, very scared of short-term volatility. Whereas people that have defined that goal can use volatility as a tool, as an opportunity, as opposed to a risk. So it's it's really important. The second thing is is also is um, people don't need our help if all they're going to do is do that. Um, and but they have to understand the the math of compounding returns. So the reason why I'm bringing that up is because compounding returns means you have to blunt the downside. And if you can blunt the downside and 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 then you you're going to be way ahead of the S&P 500, okay? Way way ahead. Um uh the American funds did a had an illustration a chart and I'm going to try to track it down, but it said if you can cut the the volatility in half on the S&P 500 and invest in the S&P 500. So you own an index fund but if you if through different mechanisms you can cut the volatility in half you wind up with two thirds more money wow so it's a it's a significant difference and i got to find that chart cuz it's really compelling and what people forget is when they think about investing in the s&p 500 is if you go down 50% which the s&p 500 has and it will again go down 50% periodically, uh, you need now to double that index index needs to double to get to break even. And people forget that from 2002 to 2015, the NASDAQ was underwater. It took, it took 13 to 15 years to break even by buying the NASDAQ index. And at one time, it's, it's coming back recently, which is why I'm using this as an example, is people are starting to talk like it was in 1999, 1998-99, when right before it got crushed for 15 years, people people are they they forgot that they can and and so I'm starting to hear that the same type of dialogue around the S and P 500 and the Nasdaq 100 again, and that tells me that the probability is, is that other parts of the market are going to do far superior to those because they're so richly valued. Look, when my barber is talking to me about the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ, it is time to take a look elsewhere for better opportunities. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that's, um, I'm glad you mentioned that as well, because uh, even people my age, so again, I'm almost 40. um, Most of our clients are around my age or older, we remember, we know the tech bubble burst in, you know, 2000, 2001. Um, and, but we don't, we don't necessarily have the history of the ramp up to that, right? Like how, like you're saying, how people were talking about the NASDAQ and tech stocks before that time. And then just how devastating that crash was for so many people. And for it to take that long to get back. And so for the echoes to be coming back and, you know, being um, to have that same type of energy around, you know, these basically what is it? Top seven 
mega cap, mostly tech stocks again in the S&P 500. That's that's interesting. Um and yeah, just a thing a thing to be aware of that it's hard and I feel like that's such a a cliche even, you know, when your barber's talking to you about the S&P 500, but it it's true. It's true. When everyone thinks it's that easy, then yeah, something's got to give. Yeah. I mean, it just tells you everybody's purchased like the marginal buy at the end of the day, an investment goes up when there's more buyers than sellers. Okay. And so, and I use my barber because the past four crises, he has wanted to get into that asset just prior. I mean, it is uncanny his timing of being on the wrong side. Okay. So I like this person. He's great, fantastic haircuts, but as an investor, it's, ter it's just terrible timing because by the time it percolates down to him and he starts hearing about it, everybody is already purchased in. Okay. Cause he's not an investment guy. He's not like he hears it on this, you know, through other people or, you know, he's just not that type of guy. So, um, which is great. Fine. I mean, he, he actually lives on CDs and he's doing great. So, you know, he's, he's made a lot more money in the last year or so than he has in the prior 15. So I'm very happy for him. But when he starts to ask, ask me about, um, you know, cryptocurrencies, he asked me about real estate in 07. He asked me about tech stocks. He, I mean, all of these things, when he starts to ask me, it's just an indicative that a lot, all the buyers have already purchased. And if you think about NVIDIA, Microsoft, uh, Meta or Facebook, Google, Amazon, I don't know too many people that don't already own part of those companies. Right. And so when that happens, where's the next marginal buyer going to come from? It, it, it's, I don't know. So that's where it becomes a little bit of a, hey, I got to worry about, you know, more downside than upside on those. Mm. Yeah, so good. And I really, like, I appreciate hearing that perspective from you as well, that, you know, the importance of having a plan and having like, an understanding of what you actually want to create before doing the investments. Because anyone who has listened to me for more than five minutes um, talk about my passion for financial planning, that's that's it. That's the key is that I always start first from the plan. I will not start with clients from here's just the investments. I won't do it. Because it doesn't get to the heart of, okay, why are we investing your money in this way? When do you need it? What is it for? And all of those factors will heavily influence what the right options are. Um, so yeah, to hear hear that from your side too, being the, you know, the sort of the chartered financial analyst um in the investment advisor seat, you know, from from me, that's I, I appreciate that. And I'm glad to see that corroborated um, for me. Yeah, it's, I'll, I'll give you a personal example. I've got a friend who is very wealthy, um, young. Uh, it, it, he's a guy, but uh, married, um, very wealthy, um, 
retired very early. Okay. Very successful. So he was able to do that. Um, if someone was just, if, if an advisor was to sit down with him and go through and just look at his demographic, they would think aggressive, long time horizon, you know, I could overweight, I, I can get him a lot of growth. Okay. And that's, that's where they would think. But had they sat down and gone through the financial planning process and gotten to know him, he is the opposite of that. Very, very much so. Like he he's looking for income and stability of principle and just to grow a little bit with inflation. That's it. Anything else he's not game for. He's not interested. Um, you know, so it, it's important to not for investment advisors to not make those snap judgments, but to go through and get to know their client and go through the financial planning process because, you know, and unless they assess in their mind what they want to accomplish, a money manager like myself can't really, can't really help. Cause we're like, yeah, we're just going to guess. And that's not the best thing to do with your financial future is, is guess. I mean, let's not guess. Right. Yeah. And the other, the other thing I want to mention is that like, I, I am super active on social media. And so again, anyone who's listening to this podcast probably found me somewhere in, in that realm as well, or that's LinkedIn or Instagram or Facebook or YouTube or wherever. And so for me to say, you know, like be speaking pretty much out against this culture of, you know, it's so simple, like, everyone should be doing this way or influencers in general. Um, yeah. And you will never, ever see me recommending anything specific ever on any of my social media because it's not appropriate. It's not appropriate for me to say, this is the thing that anyone should do without me knowing who they are and what their goals are and what they need. Um, so any, I do, I feel very, very strongly about that, that we can give education. We can, we can talk about different things and like, here's what this is and here's what that means. And, you know, again, very like educational information. And, um, for me, business building information, I love to help people figure out, you know, how to build their business and build their profit and all of that, but it's not ever going to be specific investment advice because it's, we can't, we can't do that. And, be a fiduciary and know that we're giving people the right advice for them. Um, Cause that's what it means to be a fiduciary is to take that standard very seriously and to apply it at all times. Um, so yeah, I, I just, I feel like that was important to say as well. I, I mean, I agree. I, I, I liken it a lot into being a doctor, you know, where, you know, if, if, if you were a doctor and a patient comes, comes in and the doctor just prescribes you medication, doesn't ask you any questions, doesn't examine you, doesn't do anything, just says, here, here's some penicillin. How effective is that penicillin going to be doing for a broken leg? Well, it's not. And that's unfortunately what influencers do are doing as opposed to a, a CFP is going to be sitting down and 
they're going to, if they're in the doctor's situation, they're going to be examining the body. They're going to be asking you a lot of questions about your history, your health history, you know, any, any, uh, you know, nutrition, those types of things. And, and, and upon a full examination, they're then going to diagnose you and give you the right prognosis, give you the right treatment plan to correct whatever you're there to do. And, and it's so, so important. And unfortunately, um, you know, financial advisors historically have not been that way. They've, they've been um, more uh, interested in sales than they were in the relationship of the client, you know, accomplishing their financial goals. And so, you know, the CF, the, the certified financial planner, um, organization with that designation has gone, has done an amazing job in helping um, clients find advisors that they can trust who have the expertise to, to, to help them. And so I, I have nothing but fantastic things to say about that organization and you, obviously. Obviously, (laughs) but cool. All right. Well, as always, if you have any questions and honest to God, if you disagree with anything, if you have thoughts, like the whole spectrum, I would welcome your feedback and your questions. And, um, you know, yeah, let's, let's talk about why, why things are going the way they are, or what questions you have about, um, you know, well, who knows options. We'll talk about that. <laughs> in a future episode. What are those? Why, why do they matter? Um, I love that, but yes, send your questions. We'd love to get them and we'd love to answer them on the podcast. Um, and thank you, Brad, as always for being here with me. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Always appreciate you, Hanny. Hannah. (laughs) All good. We will see you next week. Thanks. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening and be sure to like, and subscribe. And again, if anything resonated with you from this episode, I would love to hear from you. Email me at Hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H, at ExpansiveCEO.com and tell me about it. And if you're ready for your greatest expansion, you can find ways to work with me at ExpansiveCEO.com and at XSquaredWealthPlanning.com. That's X, the numeral two, WealthPlanning.com. So until next time, remember that there is enough, you are enough, and your birthright in this lifetime is to be expansive.